ever give any thought to what the perfect cow would be for the conditions we got out here in Alberta? Between the punishing winter temperatures, frequent droughts, and the occasional flood, I feel like the ideal cow for out here would be a cross between a woolly mammoth and a camel. With gills. Since that type of franken animal doesn't exist, you, as an agriculture producer, you gotta work with what you got. You've also gotta work with tight profit margins and fluctuating global markets. Fortunately, your management practices of the traits that exist in your herd can help you respond to these external factors. It's not a silver bullet, but it can help. I'm Derek Leahy, and in this episode of Rural Roots to Climate Solutions, we're talking cattle traits. Welcome back to the Rural Roots to Climate Solutions podcast series, Getting Through Drought, a series that looks at the best management practices cow-calf producers in Alberta can use to build up their ranch's resiliency against drought. The hope of the series is by creating better understanding of both how to implement these BMPs and how they're effective against drought, Alberta's cow-calf producers will have a better shot of getting through the next drought, staying in business, and just generally living happy and healthy lives. For most of you listening to this right now, I don't really need to tell you how stressful a drought can be for a producer. In this episode, we'll be discussing cattle traits in relation to drought. When we first got to work on this one, we actually wanted to make it all about drought-tolerant cattle genetics and breeds. Here's our interviewee, so Dr. Susan Marcus of Lakeland College, explaining why that approach was just a little too simplistic and not entirely practical either. Yeah. So when I think about, you know, your drought planning, it's a long-term process. And I really don't want to separate the drought planning process from your profitability, right? So if we're talking about breeds and genetics, you've obviously chosen, or most ranchers have obviously chosen breeds and genetics that do a certain job for them and produce money. If we have to pivot away to get drought tolerant genetics in, we might be losing out on some growth traits and some other, you know, important traits. So we're going to go with managing and selecting traits in this episode and how you, as a cow-calf producer, can work with those same traits that bring profitability during a good year to get you through a dry year. As Dr. Marcus said, you can't really separate profitability from drought resilience. An extremely drought-resilient cow, for example, might not be the type of cow you can make a profit off of. By the way, Dr. Marcus is a livestock research scientist at Lakeland, and she also runs a ranch in Castor, so out in East Central Alberta. Here's Dr. Marcus introducing herself and some of the fascinating research that she leads and is involved in at Lakeland College. So my name is uh, Susan Marcus, and I'm one of the research scientists with Lakeland College in Vermilion. I'm actually working from home in the Castor area, like east of Stetler because I have a ranch and the cows don't want to move. So the job works well to be home-based. So I I mean, I've always been around cows and cattle and ranch work because I grew up on a mixed, large mixed farm in northern Manitoba. And then always had jobs or lived on or was involved in some kind of farm operation. I mean, uh, when I was younger, I did all the 
tractor driving and cow processing and all those jobs that good young farm kids do. So at Lakeland College, when they brought me on as one of the applied uh, livestock research scientists, they had just developed a new Bachelor of Ag Technology degree program. What I like to do is in the, the projects that I've got going on, and one of them is with heifer development, we're looking at assessing them for various traits and using some new technology. It's the new technology piece that has been the bridge because the technology degree, if the students can get exposed to promising new technology in the livestock industry, then I've done a good job of putting that in, into the program and also looking at research that the industry wants. I often work with many you know, partners in the area and collaborate with ranchers. They have to support the research or it doesn't get funded. And so the heifer development piece about you know what is it that makes a good replacement heifer and one that stays in the herd for a long time and is productive for a long time. We've got some bolus technology uh, measuring some internal temperature and gives us estrus alerts and also gives us an indication of water frequency, how often she's drinking water. And so it could be an indicator of disease. So that technology has been uh, useful for the heifer development piece, as well as some genomics and DNA, you know, testing of these heifers to see if they've got the right traits and so we can make some good genetic progress in our herd. And then the other piece is GPS technology, where the cattle are, where they're grazing, how they're utilizing the pasture through the GPS coordinates, but also the reproductive side is, you know, if I have my bulls with GPS tags on them, do I know that he's in proximity of cows and he's staying with the cow herd and he's actually working? So it's GPS is kind of an indicator of libido and then pasture use. So those are the two main technology pieces. And then on the sheep side, because I also do a bit of sheep research, we've got a novel blood collection device. So if you're familiar with collecting blood from cattle, it's maybe a little easier once you're good at it. Sheep is a little more difficult. And so this device is experimental in humans. And so we've picked it up and we're modifying it to use it in sheep. Clips onto the ear. You don't have to have much skill other than putting it on and clipping it on. And then it has a vacuum system and it draws the blood. And the reason we're looking at getting blood out of the sheep is for a pregnancy and litter size detection device I'm working on. So with metabolites that we found in the blood of pregnant sheep, we can determine if they're pregnant or open. And also if they are pregnant, is it a single, twin, or triplets or more? So those metabolites can categorize them into those different categories. And so we need the blood to get into our device to make that final diagnosis so we can sort the sheep and then feed them differently based on how many labs they're carrying. The first question I had for Dr. Marcus was, what roles do breed and genetics have in a cow-calf producer's drought plan? I really don't want to separate the drought planning process from your profitability. Right? So if we're talking about breeds and genetics, you've obviously chosen, or most ranchers have obviously chosen breeds and genetics that do a certain job for them and produce money. If we have to pivot away to get drought tolerant genetics in, we might be losing out on some growth traits and some other you know, important traits. So you can't separate them. That's the one message I want to say about it. And the other thing is the cattle business is really built on multi-trait selection. So we can't just say we want to look at heat tolerance or drought tolerance because whenever you look at one trait and select for it, you're going to give up something else. So, so we need to be very careful that we get what we can out of the animals that we know work in our area. So with the resources that we have here, that I'm working with the cattle that, that fit. 
And then also keep in mind, you know, the traits of economic importance to a rancher in order. Number one is fertility. Number two is growth. And number three is carcass or meat traits, right? If I'm doing a drought plan, I for sure can't let fertility go. So of course, any traits that are related to fertility are the ones that I, I want to make sure are top. But also coming with that, we know fertility is a lowly heritable trait because it's more influenced by your management environment than it is by genetics alone. We we need to bring in a bunch of management here. You know, how can we keep animals getting bred, producing calves, right? That's the fertility part. And so it kind of comes down to, you know, fitting the cattle to your available resources. And in a drought, we want to look at those moderately framed cows, get away from the extremes that are either too small or too large, and probably the cows with a bit of British influence, because typically the British type breeds would have perhaps a little better maternal traits and, and fertility traits than some of the continental type breeds that are going to be you know, more milk or meat producing. So if it comes down to that, and I'm and I'm not talking to any purebred producer here saying switch your, your breed because we need the variation in the purebred breeds. My talk here will really be about, for the commercial cattleman, probably a moderately framed British-influenced cow is going to be the one that's going to work in the drought for most of the areas in Alberta, Saskatchewan, you know, Western Canada. That point about fertility being more influenced by the management environment than genetics really caught my attention. I asked Dr. Marcus if she could explain that one in a bit more detail. All the traits that we have in cattle, you know, they have different heritabilities, meaning if we want to select for them, we can make good genetic progress if that particular trait that we're focused on has a high heritability. So something like growth traits, like if you want to select for weaning weight, that's got a high heritability. If I select cattle with high weaning weights, that can be passed on generation to generation fairly well because it's highly heritable. Any of the fertility-related traits, they're lowly heritable because there's so many other environmental influences that affect them. And so number one would be nutrition. I could have a cow that maybe her genomic profile tells me that she's got good maternal traits and fertility and some of those things, but if I don't feed her right, you know, if, if she's exposed to diseases or, or stresses, you know, she won't be fertile. She she may not come into to heat and, and be bred. So it's that genetic influence. That's one thing, but it's the environmental influences that really play on fertility. So that's why in a drought, I could have selected cattle for the best maternal traits and the highest fertility. Come the drought time when I'm limited on feed resources, there's heat stress, you know, things like that that fertility is going to wane and I won't see it in my cows because of that environmental influence. So that's where I'm going with that. So my follow-up question here was, how can paying close attention to breeds and genetics help in this preparation? So when you pay close attention to the breeds and genetics, it's really about following the efficiencies of those cattle. So if we could select for feed efficiency, you know, that would be great. It's just so difficult to measure because Something like average daily gain, you think that's, you know, feed to gain, those types of um, measurements would give you an indication of your feed efficient cattle, but they don't because feed to gain ratio or average daily gain doesn't tell you how much they eat to get that gain. Mm. And the feed efficient animal is the one that eats very little, but gives you a good amount of gain, right? So it's difficult to measure. There are EPDs and there are some, you know, genetic panels that we can look at. And again, it's intermediate for its heritability. So it's not low heritability, it's not high, it's sort of moderate. Moderately heritable feed efficiency. So if you did have some 
some bulls you were bringing in to your herd for breeding that had feed efficiency EPDs, then that certainly could be one way to bring in a more feed efficient animal because that means we'd have an animal that eats very little, would probably do better in a drought because it wouldn't eat as much to keep the conditioner gain on. But the other thing is crossbred cattle, we use them for the advantage of hybrid vigor, right? When we cross cattle, get more hybrid vigor, we know from the research that cattle with more hybrid vigor in them have better longevity, they have better fitness traits, they have better growth, even have better you know, disease resistance and feed efficiency comes along with that. To make the most efficient use of your pasture resources, where I'm going with this is, if you've got commercial cattle and you always breed them back to the same breed of bull, then their offspring are going to be more of that one breed than, than a true, very high hybrid, you know, crossbred animal. So make use of two and three-way crosses. So as an example, you've got a Simmental Angus cow herd. If you breed that cow herd back to Angus, the calves are more Angus. They're losing hybrid vigor because they're getting more of only a certain breed type. But if we bring in another breed type, and I mean, you can bring in whatever kind you want, but just in my example, let's bring in a, a Hereford bull. So we now have a Simmental Angus cowherd. We breed it to Hereford. Now the offspring have that three-way cross, and then we can go back the following year and bring back an Angus onto that three-way cross heifer if we've kept them as replacements. And so it's a matter of going from this two- and three-way cross and not getting too much of one breed. Because mm-hmm. we can look at our cowherd. We don't know what breed they are unless you have a good reputable breeder that you bought them from, or you know the actual genetics that went into it. Um, but if I'm buying replacement heifers and they're black-hided or they're red-hided, I can't always assume because the coat color really tricks us up sometimes. And that's part of my research. We're looking at breed composition. Uh-huh. So I can do from their DNA panel, I can see what breeds they're made up of. And so when I show someone, oh, here's a red white face heifer, and they're like, oh yeah, it's for sure red Angus and Simmental, we could look at her breed composition and here she's Hereford and Galvi and, you know, something else that's maybe, you know, and some Angus in there, I can make the best or I can optimize my pasture resources by breeding her to the right bull to really get that hybrid vigor calf. Because if he gives me 15% more in growth from the same resources, uh, it's better for me to, to do that mating than it is to mate her with a, you know, a similar breed type. And then the calf that she produces and she's eating the same resources on that pasture doesn't grow as well because it has less hybrid vigor. Mm-hmm. So I'm just trying to optimize your pasture resources and grazing by having the right breed combination out there for the calves to get the best growth once I have them hit the ground. Like in this hypothetical situation, say you found like this cow is really good at a drought and I still make money off of it. I'm just wondering if line breeding is beneficial or counterproductive in this case, or you can kind of do a combination of hybrid vigor and line breeding. In this case, line breeding would be sort of against what I'm saying is because we want we want the hybrid vigor because of all those fitness traits, which like I said earlier with the fertility, when the environment impacts the animal's genetics, how do they perform? Mm. And so when we're talking drought, fertility, you know, adapting to the environment, all those things would benefit from having more hybrid vigor, not less. If you're curious, I did ask Dr. Marcus if there were breeds out there that were more drought resilient than others. She mentioned that those Boss Indicus breeds, sometimes referred to as Brahmin, or even Texas Longhorns, are going to be a bit more drought tolerant. However, these breeds are coming from places much further south than Alberta that have year-round grazing and don't get the same cold that we get out here. 
So in theory, yes, you could select more drought resilient or tolerant breeds of cattle. But as Dr. Marcus mentioned, you can't sacrifice the profitability of your herd. So selecting drought resilient breeds probably isn't the best BMP against a drought in the Alberta context, at least. Instead, we need to work with the breeds that we have that are adapted to our hot, cold climate. And we should keep an eye on those cattle traits that indicate a cow will likely stay healthy and productive during a drought. Here's Dr. Marcus talking about some of those traits. kind of need to always know what the industry benchmarks are for herd productivity because to start with if you're below average in a non-drought year then you're going to be struggling in a drought year so there's benchmarks out there there's some great resources with um with bcrc on their website you know you look like things what's your open rate you know what's industry open rate probably it's sitting around that six to eight percent you know if you're much above that you're having a higher open rate, well, then that's going to be a true concern in a drought because we've got less resources for these cows and heat stress to deal with. So, you know, you need to know where you're at to know how you might fare. So weaning rates is another one. And then percent of cows calving in the first breeding cycle, the second, and then the third, because we really want 85% of our cows to be bred and calve in that first cycle or two, and then the balance in the third cycle. So if you don't meet some of these industry benchmarks, you know, in a drought, for sure, you're going to struggle. It's, it's probably not going to get any better. The other thing is we also might assume a drought means hot and dry. So then you think, okay, cattle that can tolerate the heat better might be a good thing. And we often associate that with coat color, thinking, okay, if you're black-hided, you're going to struggle more in the heat. But really, because we have cool evening night temperatures here in Alberta, cattle can adjust and, and graze more in the evening to get out of the heat, right? And they can hide during the day. But the other thing with the black-hided is if they shed their uh, winter coat early and they slick off by June sometimes, then those ones actually will have a better tolerance to the heat later on in the summer, regardless of coat color. And that was some interesting research I came across because you think, yeah, black, you're going to suffer. But if you shed that coat quick, you generally do a little better because it's gone. So cows that keep their hair coat on longer, you know, might struggle a bit more with adapting to the heat because they still got that heavier winter coat. And, and the winter hair coat can be as looked at as, as an indication of their health and, and sort of immune status. And there's some other issues with mineral imbalances that might make them keep their hair coat longer. So it is kind of a pretty good indication of, you know, how are my cattle going to do if they slick off? And, you, and around here, we'd probably pick like a June, June 1st, maybe June 15th date. Look at the cows and the ones that really haven't shed off, you know, at least 75% of that coat might be the ones that struggle. So if I was going to, and we'll maybe get to it later with talk about culling, you know, there's something to consider. We might also assume that drought means, you know, lower pasture and crop yields with less feed available. So basic cattle that can keep decent body condition on with scarcer pasture and bring in a decent calf plus rebreed, of course, are the ones to keep. But in hindsight, you don't really know they're going to breed until you get down to pregnancy checking. But typically, if they got a little more condition on them, if they're not struggling earlier on, they'll probably be the ones that'll rebreed. So you got to watch for those, you know, skinny cows. Next, I asked Dr. Marcus if there are cattle behaviors a producer should pay attention to that'll help them figure out if a cow is a bit more drought resilient than the others. What we see with uh, heat tolerant cattle is that they can be out grazing and eating and not in the shade when the temperatures are hot. But the other thing is that cattle that are 
less heat tolerant. They may hide out in the daytime because we get cooling night temperatures. They'll just go, they'll just adjust when they go grazing. So typically we call cattle crepuscular. That's just a term that you use when you eat at sunrise and sunset. And that's what cattle are. So a little term for you, crepuscular. If that's the case in a drought, if cattle are so heat tolerant, they'll adjust that. And so they might be grazing a little earlier in the morning or a little later in the night just to avoid the hot temperatures. That's one thing. And then another thing about behaviors is as managers, we kind of make them have certain behaviors. So where I'm getting at here is your breeding season. And if I turn up my balls at a certain time of year, say July 1 is the start of my breeding season, that also coincides with hot temperatures and when the plants might be going dormant. So if you can adjust to your breeding season by a couple of weeks, as long as you can handle the calving season that is a consequence of that, you know, by maybe breed, having the breeding season sometime a little early in June instead of July, because then we don't have as hot temperatures. Because we know bulls will, if it's too hot, their libido goes down. They'll be hiding in the in the trees to get away from from the heat. And so you just get less less mating opportunities for those bulls when it's a drought and it's hot. So if you want to change your management up and switch that, that's one way to get out of that July, August. That's the peak of the heat. And that would be the peak of that bad behavior in bulls for hiding away and not doing their job. And then one other thing on behaviors is just how cows forage through a variety of plant types. We also know from research with cows is some cattle, if you have like a variety of terrain that they can graze, let's say we have a little bit of hills or mountainous area, riparian areas, there's research that shows cows will graze certain preferred areas. So you might have the riparian grazing cow and the other cow that always goes up the mountainsides or goes up the hills and maybe graze in the bushes and the shrubs. And those cows teach their calves where to graze. So often a calf, and if you keep that replacement heifer from that cow, she'll become what her mother was. So if I'm a, or if the cow was a riparian grazing animal, takes the easy spots, you know, the, stu- the the good grass around the water, the open pasture area. Maybe that's not the, the animal that does as well in a drought. The one that forages into the less easy spots or the more harsh or the more variety of plants and shrub species, that's the one that probably does better in a drought because they're used to eating those different types. So that's a bit of grazing behavior that, um, I mean, you can watch your cattle to see that. Uh, it's hard from a practical standpoint in a large herd. But you might notice things from certain cow families that you see them eating in certain areas. Obviously, culling has come up here and there in our Getting Through Drought series. It's that unfortunate but often necessary part of a drought plan when you've tried everything else. But obviously, if you're going to cull, you want to be smart about it. Because the upside of doing a hard cull is, if you do it right, the genetics in your herd are probably going to be better afterwards even if the overall size of your herd is substantially smaller. Here are some tips from Dr. Marcus on how to decide who stays and who goes. So culling, I mean, the obvious is cull the ones that are open, right? If you get to that point. But often you don't know they're open until end of the pasture season. So they've already used up your valuable pasture resources, right? It's a little late. (laughs) Again, we got to start our drought planning the year before or two years before. So we need to know that she produces a calf and go back to those benchmarks, you know, at least 40 to 45% of of her body weight in a weaned calf. So a nine-month-old calf from this cow should probably be 40 to 45% of her body weight. And also cull the ones that are either too fat or too thin because usually, you know, the cow will either, like in a drought, a cow will either keep condition on herself at the expense of the calf or she'll put everything into the calf and probably come up open. So that's why we might get a fatter cow 
does well, but then her calf isn't much. Or we get this skinny cow that had this great calf because she was putting everything into milk and the calf benefits from that, right? So those extremes are the hard ones because often they will come up open. I mean, I know the heavy milking cow probably in good years produces a great calf, but she takes more feed reserves. Any of those high lactation cows, they're going to take more feed. So I'd rather have the moderate frame size cow, takes average feed resources, than have a cow that needs extra feed if the drought persists. If we can creep feed calves for a few months, it's probably going to be more profitable compared to feeding those big mature cows that eat a lot year round and trying to put weight on them over the winter after the drought. Because I mean, if there's a drought, feed supplies are going to be expensive and, and scarce. So that's why we always stick to those moderate ones that have that fertility and breed back. So basically, cull your open ones. So the culling, again, is you need to cull for your conditions and, and what resources you have available. I mean, there's some other strategies about culling, maybe the older ones, because you want to keep your best genetics and they're typically younger. Other people say, no, cull some of the younger ones because you can always buy in replacement heifers when times change. And the younger animals take, the, so they're a little smaller than your mature cows because they're younger, but they take higher quality feed, but they take less of it. So there's actually two strategies to consider. Do you want to keep the best genetics and maybe supplement the cows with probably some protein and energy sources because they need a better quality when they're younger? Or do you want to have an older herd, sacrifice some of the genetics because you can buy them in from someone when things turn around, but then older cows take lower quality feed, but they take more of it. So it's really two different options there with culling who goes. It's up to you to decide what's more important to you. And so there's two different options there to go with. Right here, Dr. Marcus talks about something I had never heard of before. It's called epigenetics. It's definitely something you want to keep in mind if you're running a ranching operation. I know genetic selection is really a long-term game, and we kind of think as droughts as the short-term game, game, right? Like we hope that it, it'll go long-term, but whereas genetics is like years and years and generations and generations, right? So as far as genetic strategies, it's really about epigenetics. And so epigenetics is the study of the factors that influence the expression of the gene, not just the genetics themselves. So the biggest thing with epigenetics is the maternal influences. What happens in utero in the cow when she's pregnant can affect how the calf responds and how it expresses its genes in the future. So, you know, a calf that is born to a cow that was maybe under extreme drought and heat tall, heat stress and poorly fed, you know, will turn out differently than that same cow having a calf in a good year no heat stress, you know? Mm. And so that's what epigenetics is about. And there's been a lot of research in it and the practical end of the story here, simple, you know, uh, conclusion is keep replacements from your best cows, your best cow lines that have done well on your farm under your resources because those are the ones that have adapted to the conditions. So if you're in Southern Alberta and you had a number of years of drought and that cow family still seems to do well, we'll keep them because the epigenetics is playing a part here. It's saying they've adapted and they can still perform well on, on your farm. So that's the first thing. Or buy cattle, if you've had to get rid of some cattle, buy cattle from someone with similar resources or regional similarities because the cattle would perform similarly. 
You know, I'm not going to bring my cattle from northern Manitoba that never see a drought down to southern Alberta and expect them to do as well on the pasture there. It's just two different types of grazing situations and, and climates, right? Even though we think Western Canada is similar enough. So those slight extremes can really do a bit with culling the ones that just can't adapt as well. Some will adapt, but others don't. And then the third thing about the drought is fussy cattle that never have to adapt to eating a variety of different feeds don't tend to do as well in a drought. You can actually train your cattle and force them to eat various feeds. You can get in some different byproduct feeds and cheaper feeds that work one year over another. And if the cattle have been trained and are often being introduced to various feed sources, they can adapt better when they have to graze something different. But if they're fussy cattle that are often overfed and always have a lot of resources at hand and get the best quality hay and never have to adapt, they don't seem to adapt as well when they're forced to graze something that they don't like. It's really a little bit of training in the behavior of the grazing, but that epigenetic effect too, and that'll you'll see the, the good cow families producing replacements for you because they had to adapt. Last but not least, here's Dr. Marcus's advice to you. If you're a cow-calf producer in Alberta or anywhere in the prairies really, and you're listening to this right now, here are her words of advice for getting through a drought. When you talk about some of the strategies, and some go sort of counterintuitive to what you think, the one is about your bull power in a drought. Because like I said back before with libido sort of waning in the in the hot weather, you know, you don't want to put more cattle on the pasture because you're straining the resources, but at the same time, you want your bull power to be less cows per bull is what I'm trying to say. So if typically we say one bull for every 25 cows, you might want to consider one bull for every 20 or 18 cows. And that's because we need a little more bull power in case one gets too hot and lazy and we don't want any open cows. And so that bull power is, is something to consider in a, in a drought that you might have to have a, an extra bull out. So, I mean, that's one more bull eating pasture, but it's also a little more insurance that we have cows getting pregnant. So that's a big thing. And then, of course, weaning, weaning calves earlier. You know, it, it might make more sense to pull the calves off earlier. And calves, really, once their rumen is established, you know, at three or four months of age, they could technically be weaned. I mean, ideally, everyone weans at eight to nine months or or in that range is more common. And I guess, you know, if you wean early, you also have to be ready for it with facilities and feed to handle them, right? So there's other things to consider. It's not just pull them off early and away you go. If you've got facilities, you can do that. Looking at a benchmark again, weight per day of age, those calves need to be gaining probably 2.5 pounds per day would be their weight per day of age. So how old are they? Take their, their weight, divide it by their age and days and get that number. And if it's over 2.5, they're probably of the right genetic makeup and growth potential that they could handle being weaned early and put on a different ration. But again, you have to have the feed resources to feed them. So there'll be the two things there. And as far as other words of advice, I got some great advice from my parents. They said there'll always be cycles. You know, there'll be cycles, political cycles, price and market cycles, weather cycles. And so we know they're coming. We just don't know exactly when they're coming. So in times of plenty, you need to save up. So that way you're in times of scarcity, you have a reserve fund. And that's really true for your feed supplies and your resource management in a drought. So again, like probably everyone has said about drought planning, we, we don't want it to be a reactive process. Drought planning needs to be a proactive process. We hope you enjoyed the eighth installment of our Getting Through Drought series. We've got more episodes from the series coming your way soon. This is the first episode we've produced on trait selection in cattle, so we don't really have any other episodes for you to listen to on the same topic yet. But if you're a fan of ruminants, 
you can listen to our very first episode, So Cows and Climate Change, or episode 49, Bringing Back Ini, which is the Blackfoot word for bison. Rural Roots to Climate Solutions is an Alberta-based initiative empowering agriculture producers and the communities they live in with climate solutions. Rural Roots runs workshops, farm field days, webinars, and the Regenerative Agriculture Lab, produces a farmer's blog, works with rural communities to develop their own renewable energy projects, and of course, we do this podcast. For more information about us and what we do, go to the website, which is www.rr2cs.ca. The rest of the amazing and talented Rural Roots to Climate Solutions team is Marie Galanka, Shiana Younger, and Kristen Mountain. The podcast is funded by a variety of Alberta-based funders, and the Getting Through Drought series is largely funded by Results-Driven Agriculture Research, or RDAR. My parts of this episode were recorded in Calgary, so that means they were recorded on Treaty 7 lands and in the Métis Nation of Alberta Region 3. Happy farming wherever you are in Alberta, and remember, what's good for the climate is good for the farm. Thank you.